Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to this ODI webinar on digital dissidents, Russian online censorship and the possibilities for opposition, in which we will explore uh, both the consequences of the massive escalation in political repression and media censorship, which has been occurring since the beginning of Russia's, at least the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on 24th of February, and we begin to ask how media actors can respond to this. Uh, this is actually part of a, a new segment of ODI's work, which is very exciting, on digital societies and also builds on our previous work on online freedoms, censorship, and disinformation. Welcome, everybody. I'm Rathin Roy, and I'm Managing Director of ODI, and I'm going to hand over my colleague Theo uh, very shortly uh, to introduce the speakers and uh, then engage in discussion. Some housekeeping rules. Uh, we will be recording this webinar, so it's not Chatham House rules, obviously, and we will upload it for later to speak on the ODI website uh, when the Queen is not competing with us. Uh, the webinar will be in English, but we will have simultaneous interpretation and uh, interaction. You can turn this on by clicking the interpretation icon at the bottom of your screen. Uh, please submit questions in chat. We will then integrate them into our discussion. Uh, and I guess that's it in terms of housekeeping. So let me now commence proceedings by inviting my colleague Theo to introduce the speakers. And then we will hear a short uh, initial presentation from them followed by discussion. Over to you, Theo. Thanks, Rackton. So despite the somewhat uh, less than joyous subject today. I'm very excited to welcome a brilliant panel of speakers, including four opposition journalists and one researcher. Although all four of our speakers were either born in Russia or worked there for much of their careers, it is telling that not one of them is joining us today from Russia. The journalists joining us today, Yekaterina Kotrikatsa, Farid Rostamova, and Teisia Vyakolatova, all have extensive experience working at or with independent media outlets, and their work has brought each of them into direct confrontation with the Russian state. Yekaterina Kotrikatsa worked as a journalist and newsprint presenter at TV Rain, which until it was forced to stop broadcasting on the 5th of March 2022, was the leading Russian opposition channel and is now a co-host of the YouTube channel Kotrikatsa Siadko. Uh, Farid Rostamva is an independent journalist who has worked with almost every opposition outlet in Russia, including the Adusa, TV Rain, and the BBC Russian service. She now publishes her own newsletter, Farideu. Uh, Taisia Vyakulatova is the editor-in-chief of one of Russia's boldest independent news outlets, Olo Media. On the 30th of December 2021, she was declared a foreign agent by the Russian Ministry of Justice. Our final speaker is lecturer and researcher at the University of Sheffield, Ilya Yavlokov. He has written extensively on the role of conspiracy theories in Russian state propaganda and disinformation, including two books on the subject, and as such is uniquely placed to talk to us about the forms of propaganda favoured by the Russian state and what makes it so hard for independent journalists to fight against it. And so now that we have introduced speakers, I'll pass the floor back to Ratin and our speakers can make their initial statements. Yes, so can I first invite Ekaterina uh, Kotrikatsi to make her initial statement? Hi, hi there. Um, <clears throat> well, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for the invitation, and I'm honored to be a part of this discussion. Uh, well, 
you know, the, the situation in Russia is tough. Right now, there is uh, no independent news media organizations there, not even a single one. So everyone, everyone was banned, everyone was forced to leave the country. And um, as we understand, at least I have this, this kind of feeling that when the special so-called special military operation started uh, in Russian Federation, the idea was to push the journalists, independent journalists from the country. So I, I, don't, I don't think and I don't see that there was, um, there was a goal to arrest all of us to detain all of us, you know, to put us in prison and, and to have such a huge problem and mess and chaos uh, with us sitting in prison. This was not a main goal on that stage. Um, and everything was, um, the whole situation and atmosphere was built to give us the sense of, uh, of danger that we, we all felt in Russia. Uh, there were a lot of a lot of steps steps taken by the government, including this law that you have all heard about. The law, which uh, actually, mm, you know, puts a person up to for up to fifteen years in prison just for calling a war a war, or to you know to covering for covering the situation in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, or for quoting, for example, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, or any other representative of Ukraine government. So uh, this law was just one part of, of the, you know, the, the whole chain of steps taken by Vladimir Putin and his, uh, his friends to give us an understanding that we could not stay there anymore, including personal threats that I, I was getting and my husband, editor-in-chief of TV Rain, was getting, uh, you know, texts like we are the slaves of Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, who is uh, head of Chechnya and who is out of any laws in Russia and who can do anything he wants, including, you know, well, terrible criminal, criminal activities uh, that, that he practices uh, these days included in Ukraine. So uh, we, we know that um, there is a huge threat for us if we go back there. On this stage, uh, they think that we are not a problem for them, but I hope that we are. What we do is uh, we understood that there are just few channels left that we can use to reach the audience in Russia. First of all, we have uh, launched uh, a YouTube channel, me and my husband, Tifan uh, Zitko, and we, we are having streams twice weekly, in, including tonight, uh, on, on Tuesdays and on Fridays, we have home streamings, um, talking to the to the people in Ukraine and out of Ukraine, you know, newsmakers, decision makers. We are trying to we're trying to cover the events, the, the things that are important to the Russian audience. And we understand that the audience is really interested after we have fled Russia. I was getting personally, all, all my colleagues uh, actually from TV Rain were getting the messages and, uh, you know, comments from the viewers of TV Rain. People were literally begging for any, any sort of information source. Um, they were begging to cover the situation. They were begging to explain what the hell is going on with their, with their country, not only with Ukraine, but also with their country, with themselves. And this is what we're trying to do uh, from Georgia at Tbilisi right now. Um, our colleagues from Tiberian have also launched uh, their own YouTube channels. 
and we are planning the reunion, big reunion of the channel in a couple of months, uh, which is extremely important to us, you know, to, to build a new, a new big media organization, media outlet to be a real, um, a real problem for Russian propaganda faces. Right now we are, but still it's, it's much, it would be much stronger that the whole channel with a lot of people working there with, with the system and organization and logistics, it's going to be much more efficient um, in our opinion. Also, we have this Telegram channels, all of us, almost all of us, um, uh, the journalists of, of TV Rain, the faces of TV Rain, we have the Telegram channels and Freddy for example, also has, I mean, all um, independent journalists uh, who were forced to leave the country are trying all the best to reach people inside of, inside of Russia. And not only them, uh, also to reach people who are out of the country and who are also, um, who are also really looking for searching for the independent sources of information to, to know the details uh, of this catastrophe. So uh, this is for the introduction. Um, thank you very much again for having me and go on. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yes, so one important takeaway is that you do have a YouTube, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> YouTube TV channel uh, pod, uh, broadcast today. So members of the audience might want to take note of that and join it. And our next speaker is Farida Rustamova. Yeah, hi everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, do, do, you, do you hear me? Is everything okay? Uh, yeah, and um, well, actually I, I, I've been preparing uh, a huge speech about my a career in numerous independent media, but I'm not gonna <laughs> tell you about my whole experience. Um, uh, I, I want to uh, support Yekaterina and tell that uh, the goal of this uh, devastation of, of Russian independent media, the last that was remaining uh, uh, in the beginning of the war, uh, it was uh, actually the disorganization and devastation in order to uh, to uh, deprive uh, Russian population from any any literally any source of independent information and to cover everything with propaganda and and sugar pill everything that is going on right now and uh, we have not so many cha uh, channels left. And me personally, I don't have a YouTube channel, but I have my Telegram channel, and I I have launched my uh, Substack newsletter uh, at the beginning of the war because I chose Substack because it's a platform that is um, not uh, not very popular in Russia. It's actually unknown in Russia, and uh, I chose it uh, uh, because because everything was blocked, obviously, as as you probably know. Uh, and yeah, and the main the main problem right now, as I see it, is actually this all, all this blocking. Although, of course, many people uh, are now using VPNs, and and uh, the usage of, of it increased uh, enormously since the beginning of the war. But yeah, it's it's a big challenge for us because uh, the more effort you need to take to uh, reach the independent source. It's 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 the harder for, for uh, it, it's harder to gain popularity. It's harder to reach audience if it takes too much effort. Uh, 
uh, and uh, yeah, and and uh, I think that maybe Substack and the newsletters that are delivered via email may be uh, some kind of answer to that. Um, so it's 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 a brief uh, uh, about my current current uh, current activities, and um, I. Uh, uh, tell me, please, if you want me to talk you through uh, about uh, the developments of, of, of the, the fate of the, the Russian independent media right before the war, because it's actually, I think it's, it is important to, uh, to know about those challenges and the surprising paradox that happened with them uh, in the first days of the war that made uh, Russian society visibly divided, although uh, as, as, as I've said already, uh, there are only a few of independent media. Thank you. Thank you, Farida. Uh, we'll come back to some of these questions later in the chat, hopefully. I certainly have a couple of questions for you. Uh, so now, uh, I think, uh, Taisia? Yes, hello, and thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm very glad. and. Um, uh, I would say, for starting, that uh, what happened on February uh, is uh, a natural res result of Vladimir Putin's many years of rule, uh, in my opinion. And uh, if uh, before it was a problem for Russian people, the, those uh, repressions and censorship, and um, it was like only for Russians, but uh, what is happening now is a problem for the whole world, and we need to think about it uh, like in all countries. And uh, if we talk about our, our publication, which is called Hold Media, our site uh, was blocked uh, as uh, many others on April 9th. And um, uh, I myself uh, was uh, personally declared in Russia as a foreign agent, which means, uh, which is a modern analog of the Soviet expression. Uh, it's like enemy of the people. And uh, it means uh, the, that law means that um, for any two posts on social media uh, without uh, indicating that you are a foreign agent, uh, the state can send you to, to prison. So, and uh, after that, um, in Russia, there was uh, a law, uh, they adopted a new law, uh, they call it like uh, a law of fakes. Uh, but uh, actually, it was uh, a law which uh, was uh, created to fight uh, an independent uh, media and uh, independent journalists. And uh, they made this law and uh, told us that uh, if you use a uh, word uh, war for telling about the war, so uh, you can be sent to prison for 15 years. And after that, we evacuated our journalists uh, from Russia because uh, it was too dangerous for them to, to work uh, inside the country. Uh, and um, I would like to draw attention actually to the situation of uh, journalists in the regions of Russia uh, because uh, this, their situation is much worse uh, in my opinion, than uh, of for journalists from Moscow publications, because um, 
to live and there are no uh, independent media in the regions left where they can work uh, as a media professionals. Uh, so uh, for many years, uh, regional journeys in Russia was, has been dying, but um, it is quite dead today. So there are rare exceptions, uh, exceptions, but in general, this is the case. So I'd like to say about that. And uh, I think that's all for my introduction. And thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thank you, Taisia. Uh, this was very interesting. And you gave us a sense of the history, I think, which we need to come back to in a minute. But before that, let's get our uh, final speaker, uh, Ilya Yabdukov to make his opening comments. Thank you. Just want to check, how much time do I have for this introductory? How much time would you like? <clears throat> OK, cool. Uh, right, so thank you so much. I, I really, I'm really glad to be on the same panel with this wonderful Russian journalist. I'm, I admire their work. Some of them are my friends. So it's really good to be here and to share some of the ideas that uh, I have about the, the journalism and dissidents and in a way in this, uh, how the um, media system works. So you've uh, introduced me as an expert on this information, but uh, the second part of my kind of academic and professional interest is how journalism in Russia and post-Soviet space has been developing after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So very often we hear uh, about the parallels with the Soviet Union and the fact that a lot of the contemporary Russian establishments are sort of rooted in this um, low-level nomenclatura of the late Soviet Union, which is fair. But uh, I'd like to say that I, I think it's going to be a big mistake to compare, let's say, what dissidents have been doing in the Soviet Union and even in the late Soviet period and to what's happening with the Russian society and Russian media and state media and independent media in Putin's Russia. Because I think one of the key differences, there are lots of differences, certainly on technological, cultural, political level, ideological level, but I think one of the biggest um, key elements that defines uh, why the Russian kind of government or state-aligned media operate so well is capitalism, the money, and how uh, the system works, uh, why there are so many, the so-called journalists, certainly we wouldn't call them journalists these days, but those who work in uh, the media, uh, they, uh, they work there first and foremost for career aspirations and for financial reasons, even if they don't share the views of the state or those people who represent the state, they kind of, they, 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 they have to, to work there. That's kind of, they sign the contract, they have obligations, they have debts, etc. So, and this is not the development of the recent years or so. Although I agree with uh, Thaisa, it's been going that way for a few years and probably a, a good decade. But this kind of capitalist element of how Russian propaganda works, it's been, uh, it's been there from basically the early 1990s. It's just the, uh, the effort that the state put in shaping this propaganda machine, kind of um, trying to get rid of the dissenting voices. That's, that certainly was a mass 
effort by state and semi-state actors in the last two decades. Again, uh, all of the all of the all of the co-panelists they've been working in Russia in the last several years. But first, what the state have done, they tried to get rid of uh, the funding, right? So the funding flows have been cut off. And then when independent media found a way to actually operate and use other means of financing their, their operations, the state basically intervenes with the force and cuts of their uh, ability to report to the public. So this financial aspect is, I think, is one of the key that defines how the state media works, but also how opposition media could work and uh, and will be working eventually. The second thing that I'd like to uh, point out here is about the limitations of state propaganda and probably the um, uh, the, probably the agenda for the future, for that let's let's hope the nearest future. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> we certainly observe from various polls uh, that there is a strong support for what is called a military operation or the war in Ukraine. Um, to be fair, but uh, we also see that quite a lot of people are not supportive of. Of that, and they're really scared. Uh, they are really under pressure. They are afraid to, you know, to be excluded from uh, the community. Let's say of their peers. If we are talking about regions, uh, we do not want to be focused too much on Moscow and St. Petersburg. But at the same time, they are afraid of the of the um, legal consequences of their uh, opinions. However, uh, if we talk about the independent media and what independent media should be striving to do is about delivering the content that would, uh, that would be focused on values. And I think that's the agenda for future. What kind of future the opposition to the state media, the opposition to the state can actually bring? Reporting is very important, but also delivering the values and talking about what is going to happen after. That is also very important. In that sense, I, I really kind of admire what Holod does these days. Uh, especially, I recommend the piece on nationalism and how various ethnic communities feel today. Uh, so we see from the research that I am familiar with, uh, we see that there is quite a lot of people in Russia are interested in talking about values, kind of seeing the alternative perspective. And in that sense, the agenda of uh, Russian independent media uh, is very much similar to the agenda of Russian uh, political opposition, because Russian political opposition is also, in that sense, is not performing really well in delivering what are the alternatives. And in that sense, I think uh, when we have a quite strong state media uh, system working, brainwashing people, indeed, that's what they do. Uh, imagine when, when, when this system is off, what are we going to have? So how is it going to look like? The last thing I'd like to kind of observe in these days is that what happened to Russia in 1991 when the system collapsed. So in that sense, I think uh, 
journalists will again play the key role in developing uh, democratic values. Uh, but how is it going to be done? I think we can we can start discussing today. Thank you. Thank you. That was a very interesting and diverse set of uh, comments. Let me encourage people uh, who are not here and who are there remotely to uh, please put your questions or, or reflections in chat. But pending that, I have a question for at least uh, the uh, uh, three journalists here, which is how surprised were you by what happened after the 24th of February? Did you see this playbook unfolding as it did? Did it surprise you? Did it overwhelm you? Any comments on this? Who'd like to start? Maybe we can go in the opposite order. Taizia, did it surprise you? Uh, you mean the start of war? No, I mean, what happened after the war and, uh, uh, you know, two media coverage of the war and... and, and uh, no, I can't say I was surprised. Actually, I was uh, expecting it uh, because... Uh, I think the Russian state uh, wanted to do it all these years, I mean, to block all the uh, independent media outlets, and uh, it was like uh, natural for them. So I don't think it's, uh, it's some surprise for any of independent journalists. Uh, but uh, we're trying to fight it, actually, because uh, I know that um, my colleagues and our website, we created uh, few mirror websites uh, which are made for uh, for Russian people so they can read our articles and uh, to to get our content and we're working a lot on social media um, despite the fact that uh, Instagram for example is uh, declared as an extremist uh, platform in Russia so we're doing what we can and uh, we're trying to get to inside Russia uh, without being there. Uh, Ekaterina, uh, in the, what I think Ilya called the non-journalist people who work in the media, that is the people who actually work in state media and, you know, it's outlets or pro-government media. Are there any fifth columnists? Are there people who tacitly are able to help you and support you to get your message across? or to get information regarding what is happening and what they have learned, but they cannot themselves write about a broadcast? If I, if I understand you correctly, um, you are asking, is there any journalists who are trying to help us to deliver the message to the Russian audience? No, actually, no. <laughs> no, there, there are no such people in Russian Federation who would help uh, because of different reasons. And first of all, um, uh, you know, the situation after the February 24th uh, is quite clear. Uh, there are no shades of gray anymore in Russian Federation. This is kind of a black and white. Um, and um, there are no opinion makers uh, inside of Russia or outside of Russia who, um, who can just be independent or neutral or or not to talk about what's going on. I mean, this is, this is a disaster that is happening right now in front of our, our eyes. Our country is killing civilians in a neighboring country. It's invading, it's destroying, and it doesn't have any, I don't know, any, it doesn't make any sense, right? Except 
except for the Vladimir Putin's ambitions and his obsessions, his obsession on Ukraine. So uh, I, I would not, I would, I could not give you the positive answer for your question because uh, everyone, almost everyone, have fixed their position. Um, you know, people who are known in Russia, they are divided. Someone is for the for this war. Someone supports this war. Someone does not. But the, the main part of of the people who does who do not support this war, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of famous people who do not support this war are out of the country right now, unfortunately. So inside inside, it's it's quite uh, it's quite complicated to find someone who would support you and who I mean who would help you in delivering in delivering the messages because. Uh, and what, one of the reasons is um, the level of uh, level of uh, fear is quite is quite high right now in Russia. You may imagine this is a dictatorship right now. And I would, if you if you don't mind, I would just add to what what Taisia has just mentioned, uh, answering your previous question. Um, you know, during the dictatorship. You can you can expect something like that. Uh, before February twenty fourth, uh, Vladimir Putin was trying to pretend being an autocrat, something like Erdogan, maybe something close to other, you know, people who are tough in their countries, but who are still connected with the real democratic, connected with the democratic world, progressive societies, and so on and so forth. He was he was. He was not cutting the ties. He was not burning the, the bridges. He wanted to be connected with Joseph Biden, Emmanuel Macron, and uh, Angela Merkel, and then Olaf Scholz and, and others. I mean, to him, it was important to still have this relationships with the global world. He wanted to be in G8, which is G7 right now after the annexation of Crimea. He wanted to be you know, in the middle of the interests of people on G20 and, and, and so on and so forth. He wanted to be a part. And also, I would tell you, he wanted to be the guy of two, one of two who would decide the faith of the world together with American president. That's why he, that, he didn't want to kill everyone and everything and, and every single media outlet, independent media outlet in Russia. But after February 24th, he decided that it doesn't make sense to him anymore. And he has cut all the ties and he doesn't, I mean, we were ready for that. We knew that if he starts this war, actually, we would not survive this. So that there was no surprise to us at all. Thank you. Well, that's pretty clear. And that's interesting because, you know, even in Nazi Germany and other places, uh, you did have some collaborators, but the fact that they have not yet emerged is, is very troubling and very profound. It makes your job all that more difficult. Uh, Farika, can I ask you, uh, I was reading this morning about, uh, you know, the impact that sanctions are having on the lives of Russians. And it seemed to me from what I read in the Financial Times, the FT, that the impact was mainly a shrinking of imports and it was essentially affecting middle class and richer people in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, so, one, sort of, to what extent is this true? And second, uh, do you think that the, the reporting that we are seeing in, in Western media on, on the negative impact of sanctions in Russia, is that, is that coming across in, in, in real lives in Russia? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it's just a, a, a little 
echo then uh, i hope that i hope that i understand yeah yeah i hope i hope that yeah, i uh, understood you correctly and <clears throat> so you're asking me about the impact of the sanctions on the general public uh as far as i yeah uh-huh um <clears throat> well um speaking about sanctions uh and their impact on uh, russian media by the way independent media uh it's it's a paradox but uh uh main um, many of, of of russian independent outlets that are operating right now are deprived from uh from uh, the support of their readers and 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 listeners and 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 general public because because uh they cannot they have uh a little very little means to donate and support uh the independent journalists right now uh it's part of <clears throat> it's 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 a it's a result of uh the economical sanctions that are imposed in russia right now uh i'm not saying that uh, well it's just a fact i'm not judging it or <laughs> saying that it's it was wrong but yeah it's it's obvious and i know that's some of some of the journalists that uh stayed in moscow after the war uh and they were trying to continue their work trying to continue their broadcasting on youtube for example or in on other platforms uh they just couldn't do that because they couldn't earn money for their work they couldn't they they basically they uh they didn't have uh, uh they couldn't make for a living and some of them uh they they in the end they decided to leave russia to be able to uh earn money for their job and to, to continue it uh and speaking of of middle class and rich russians um you know uh it's it's a funny uh uh thing uh as as far as i know in in uh, uh and from what i can see right now uh many uh uh rich russians as you call them uh i, I would i would prefer to talk about russian so called russian elites uh that are they have some that have some influence uh in in political life at least they had it uh they uh, their families uh it seems like they are, finding ways to live uh, or and to uh spend their vacations abroad and to reach uh to goods that they uh were uh considered to deprive with uh, because of the sanctions uh and i i don't see that they actually suffer uh, a lot right now they're finding because it's maybe it's because they reach and they have resources still and they can find uh ways to to not only survive but to continue flourishing uh and about middle class uh what i i can tell you just uh my 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 impressions uh of what i heard from my friends and family um <clears throat> uh many people say that it seems like in well particularly in moscow and but other uh, uh big cities too that uh that um, there is no war going on that they, they don't they don't feel it personally uh and they some of them uh are 
tired of, of this agenda uh, and uh, as they don't feel the impact of it on their uh, personal lives, um, <clears throat> they just they just continue uh, continue uh, living as, as they lived before. Uh, and it sounds it may sound weird, but but in some way that 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 is true. And um, the impact of the sanctions uh, is um, I think it's gonna uh, be uh, it's gonna uh, people gonna feel it gradually. It doesn't happen in a in a single moment. And but what I heard, you know, it, it's just it's just simple things. People sometimes cannot find. Uh, medications that they need in pharmacies. Sometimes people cannot uh, repair their cars because uh, <clears throat> the, the foreign companies are not operating in Russia anymore. And these things seem uh, not very crucial right now, but it feels like it's gonna feel crucial. And uh, in, in the longer the war is going on, uh, the longer the impact will be. So, um, but right now, right now, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like. Uh, well, <clears throat> um, if the um, intentions were to somehow punish uh, general public too, it doesn't seem like it. It, it was effective. Uh, anyone like to add anything to any of the three points you've seen as uh, you see in the chat? Don't wait for me to uh, ask you if you have something to add. If you don't, then I do have a question for Ilya, which is, uh, you know, this, this entire uh, notion of a conspiracy uh, against Russia, if you will. What role does it play in mainstream Russian news and Russian disinformation? And has its sort of contours, has its contours changed substantially since 24th of February? Thank you. Um, the, this notion of conspiracy is key in uh, the uh, public mobilization. Uh, that's the first role of it. Uh, so in many ways, I have observed in my research that this notion of kind of the West tries to get us is uh, first of all, a rather popular notion throughout centuries in Russia, but uh, starting from early 2000s, it's been basically turned into a powerful instrument of popular mobilization in critical moments. So uh, there have been like short-term periods like in 2007 during the uh, elections uh, into the parliament, but also Putin's transfer to the prime minister. Uh, also, there was like this short-term period in 2011, 2012, when Putin was coming back, and there was quite a um, reasonably big opposition to that. The next moment we saw during the Crimea annexation and today. But the difference between the uh, two lots of moments is that these uh, kind of public mobilization based on conspiracy theories, it's been quite uh, long term. So we've seen television and other means of the state turning into like 24 seven propaganda mode as we have seen today. 
Um, it's uh, it is fairly um, it's fairly serious. It's fairly powerful, especially when it comes with the state punishing its opponents. So one thing is when let's say pro-government speakers uh, say all sorts of anti-Western stuff. That's kind of, that's, that, that, that happens everywhere. Like that we can find the same thing in, uh, in the United States. We can find the same, rather same thing in other countries of the world. So conspiratorial rhetoric is in a way normalized these days. But in the case of Russia, especially in the last decade or so, the conspiratorial referee comes with the amendments to the legislation. And some of the laws are clearly built on this notion of conspiracy against Russia. Well, the same law that punished Taisia, the foreign agents law, the same law kind of that punished Dost, TV Rain, uh, that when they've been named the foreign agent, it's the same kind of, it's the same principle. You basically call someone the other inside a country, the dangerous other, you spread a lot of propaganda about that, but then in addition to that, you put some uh, legislative punishment for this person of this organization. So in uh, the last 10 years, basically all the, all the opposition or any organization that could somehow be in opposition or somehow be efficient in bringing the alternative voice bringing the alternative angle to the story, they have been just washed away from the public space, political space, and now we can see the media space. So it's, it's unfortunately, and when I started my research many years ago, it was a quite a different country and conspiracy theories existed, but they were not so prominent. These days we can see that it's, it's one of the central elements of the state propaganda uh, and uh, it's shocking in many ways now. And, and do do other stakeholders in Russia believe this lock, stock, and barrel? The army, the civil service, the diplomacy, the diplomatic corps, you know, the media. I'm not talking about common people necessarily. The question applies to them too. But you know, people who affect public policy, people who are decision makers, they believe this wholesale. The question of believing, not believing, is very tricky one because you need to have like interviews with them. Well, we can say it could only be like a, a speculation. I mean, yes, I can speculate that in the last five, six years, for example, among the army officers and among these kind of um, militarized communities within Russia, this notion of American or UK or whatever Western conspiracy against Russia, that notion have been institutionalized. And we can see some semi-official documents, some doctrines, and we can see lots of kind of speakers who represent the military and FSB and um, kind of um, other communities related directly to the law enforcement services um, that they refer to conspiracy theories as a way to legitimize their actions. As for other groups, I mean, people are people, like uh, bureaucrats who, let's say, represent the liberal side of the Russian political or economic establishment. They consume the same news channels as any other people uh, in Russia. 
So if they have biases, if they have uh, psychological or social or cultural predisposition to beliefs in conspiracy theories, they will definitely uh, be rather uh, trusting what these pro-government propaganda channels are pushing rather than to what independent journalists say. And, well, one of the kind of central uh, beliefs in the modern Russia is we don't trust anyone. Like everything is, it's not so simple as you say, as they say, or it's not, um, uh, there is something, there is something about that, that we don't know, or probably we don't know the whole picture. So we cannot make this judgment. So this, you know, kind of this gray zone of everything is possible is such a fruitful atmosphere for state propaganda and for pushing conspiracy theories. Sorry, would you like to add something? Have you written about political mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, I would like to emphasize that this is uh, my impression uh, and fr from the talks of, of the people who we can call members of elite, uh, political elite and business elite. Um, I think that uh, it actually doesn't really matter if they believe this propaganda from the state uh, channels or not, because um, uh, I think that um, they they consume uh, what what is beneficial to them, uh, and they keep everything in mind to uh, <clears throat> that that helps them to pump pump out the money from the state uh, and to follow. Uh, but but yeah, but of course they listen to propaganda to to uh, be in the context and to you know um, be able to survive in the system. But I think these people often uh, explore independent media too to know the real uh, the real picture of what's going on uh, in order to save their money somewhere abroad to. Uh, to realize what's what is really going on uh, again uh, to and 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 they use it for their own personal benefit uh, and that's um, I think it's a, it's a, it's my general um, assumption uh, about uh, the political elites. It doesn't it doesn't really matter actually uh, if they personally believe it or not. Uh, but we know that uh, from from <clears throat> from many sources right now, actually. So there were a plenty of, of articles about it that uh, that Putin's inner circle uh, they uh, they lied uh, so much uh, to the to the public that in the end somehow they end up uh, believing their own propaganda. And that's one of one of the one of the uh, reasons of, of military failures uh, you know, of Russia in, in in Ukraine. But I can say that uh, it seems to me that they are learning. Actually, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it looks like uh, uh, at least uh, Putin's closest circle. Uh, they 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 started to realize that uh, they don't have enough uh, authentic information 
uh, about uh, Ukraine especially and everything else too. So they are, they are learning. They, uh, they are exploring. Uh, what, and, and we can see that with, with this, uh, uh, I don't know, as, as Alexei Rostovich said, the depressive phase of, of the war is going on. And I think that this is a process of, of uh, adaptation uh, is going on right now. Katrina. Yeah, um, I would add just a couple of words uh, to what was already said here that, you know, it's important to understand that you cannot have the exact digits about, about the people believing or not believing in propaganda in Russian Federation right now. You, you cannot know that. I mean, some of the people as they are used to, and they were used to, they sit uh, in their kitchens uh, every single night and then start screaming that Putin is a monster and that he is, you know, um, he's, he's not letting them live freely and there, there is no money anymore and jobs and, and corruption is terrible. Everyone faces the corruption in Russia, you know. I mean, this is something that you can, there, is, there is a common knowledge about the corruption in Russia. You can, you can face it on every single step of your way in this country. And this is something terrible. And also uh, people don't want to get used to it. And they talk about that every day. Uh, simultaneously, it's impossible to understand what do, what do they really think inside of them, at their brains when they switch on television? Because in Russian Federation, they still switch on television every time they come back home after the walk, especially in the regions of the country. There is a habit. Uh, it, we don't have a television at home, for example, but a lot of millions of Russians still do, and they do watch television. And, um, you know, there are figures of Livada Center, which is also declared a foreign agent in Russia, and which is a which which is an independent sociological institution, the only left actually. They are saying that it's eighty percent of Russians who support the war, eighty percent of Russians. We have talked and we have recorded a huge interview with Lev Gutkov from from Livada Center, trying to understand how can you be so sure when you have a dictatorship in the country? How can the figures and sociology? How can the sociology exist, even exist in the country when every every word you say may result as a prison, right? And um, he still insists that this these figures are right, that 80% of Russians really do support Vladimir Putin because of different reasons. But again, I, as a person who is not involved in sociology, who is a journalist, I have huge doubts in, in these figures from one hand and from another, I can understand why millions of Russians, millions, this is, this is a fact, right? Millions of Russians still want to believe and trust what they hear from the television because it's comfortable. You know, it, it, it gives you a sense of uh, being right in this, in this disaster. Uh, they don't want to believe that the, their country is killing civilians right now. They don't want to believe that their country who is to be a, uh, who used to be a country of great victory over Nazism and fascism, uh, is committing the same crimes as Adolf Hitler was committing uh, in, in 1940 something, right? 41, 45. This is this is uh, this, it, this propaganda gives them a sense of of comfort, of 
mm, of not, gives them an opportunity to not to think about this terrible period of time, not to think about the responsibility that they they have to bear, but they don't want to. And this gives them a sense of, uh, you know, this isolated, um, isolated, but uh, cozy, cozy home, which is uh, an enemy of NATO and the United States, because they just don't like Russia and Russians, and they are just Russophobic. It's just, you know, it's easier to listen to them and to believe them. But again, it's, I'm not sure about 80%. I think it's something about 60, but this just, this is, these are just my feelings and my thoughts. Okay, uh, Ilya? I just add to what uh, Ekaterina said that discomfort uh, is the result of powerlessness. Uh, for, again, for many years, the state was working to kind of transfer this idea into the minds of as many Russians as possible that you cannot change anything, that you are powerless, that uh, whatever happens on the global level, on the national level, on the regional level, you don't have your words, you don't have anything, you don't have a single instrument that you can apply in order to change the situation. As soon as communities, as soon as individuals were finding the way to express their willingness to change the things, they, at some point, they have been put on this list of the government's enemies. And in that regard, uh, I'd like to go back to one of my points, what journalists can do today. It is very important to inform what happens today but I think the agenda of independent media should also be in providing those who want to do, who want to listen, who want at some point to act and also pass this information to those who doubt what can be done, what is the future, what can be provided after. Because at this point, many people think it's dangerous to act, it's dangerous to think about things because I don't know when it is going to be over. And it's a very fair concern. And I'm the, I'm the last one to say, you know, uh, from the comfort of my work that, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. I'm not saying that, but it's about also the ways, the content that can really help people to start thinking about the alternative scenarios of, the future, not even for their, their own lives, but probably for those mid-aged people of 40, 45 plus about their kids. Because again, I'm referring to those polls that I have seen. The, there is a generational division between those who support the, the, the war and those who do not support the war. It is a pretty clear division between people of 45 plus and people of the younger generations who are not happy about that. So the question, the big question is, we can, conspiracy theories will always be there. Propaganda will always be there. Disinformation will always be there. What are we going to have after that? What kind of values? What principles? What agenda? That's the big thing. And that's that, that, that we should be concerned about. Great. Uh, so we come to Taisi in a minute to 
take that question back and solve it. I said a question in the chat. But first, Parita, you had a point? Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to add a little uh, to uh, Ilya's uh, point. Um, I agree. I totally agree that I. Um, I think uh, the results of of even independent uh, polls uh, are have some nuances. Uh, I think that these seventy or eighty percent of people who support. Well, as, as they say, uh, who support the war? Uh, I think that this is this is not exactly the answer to the question of support, or or if, of if they support the war or not. I think it's more about what they can do with that, and it's obviously that they cannot influence uh, on on that. That they cannot, they have nothing to do with that because they have absolutely no means to to. Uh, somehow uh, influence the situation. Nobody asked them before uh, starting the war. Uh, and um, the another thing I wanted to add is that uh, it's a it's a it's a big paradox for me actually. And this was quite surprising for me personally as a for as a journalist uh, that the beginning of the war, the very first days. Uh, it was marked by the rise of independent sources of information in Russia, the, the few remaining uh, sources, uh, Medusa, TV Rain, BBC Russian Service, and all the independent outlets, actually, they all had an enormous influx of the audience. Uh, and it's a paradox, but they uh, have become uh, mainstream again, but for, for the moment, but still. And uh, the huge division in the society was really visible. Uh, and that's the scariest thing for the Russian government. And, uh, and, uh, and that's the reason why they shut everything down. So uh, in a, such a cruel manner, they blocked everything, literally everything, oh, and even, even social media. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, this, is, this, is, this is a thing that we should bear in mind when we talk about this general support of, of the war uh, imposed on propaganda. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks. I'm sorry, just one, one thing uh, I, w I wanted to add to what Fadila has just mentioned, that we have become mainstream during the war. It's, it's very important to understand that TV Rain was already blocked from the cable networks in Russian Federation. I mean, from 20... 14th, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, TV Rain was off every big, huge, right? I mean, uh, influential cable network uh, in Russia. We were at that moment, before 24th of February, we were there at, you know, at the packages of small cable networks in the regions of the country, a few, but uh, mainly we were already banned. So they, they have started the war with a with a big television station, the independent television station, years ago. The only thing that was left was internet to us. And this is something that really scared them. Uh, I'm supporting what, has, uh, what Farida has just said. Uh, this, this is something that really scared them when they have just you know, acknowledged that they have killed something already on TV on something traditional and classic and everyone is watching TV in Russia and they have already killed it. But wow, 
surprise. It's now killing them, propaganda faces online. This was something that they were, I mean, they were not, um, I don't know, maybe they were ready for that after they, they saw TV Reigns and, uh, and Yuri Dudes and Redacted. And there are several projects, media project, projects that are and have been already really popular online on YouTube. But on that stage, after the war has started, they have seen that people have started to, to, you know, to search for alternative sources of information. And it's really important to, to understand that it was, not, it was not like everyone said, okay, uh, Vladimir Putin has said that we need this war, so we, we believe that we need this war. It was not like that. People are critically um, thinking about what was going on uh, and what is going on. So it's a, it's a very important indicator, and we will. That's why we we are planning to go on uh, with with this fight. Nice, uh, you have two formulations in the chat. Can you see them? Uh, you can choose to answer either or a third formulation as you please. Yeah, I see them. Uh, I can uh, answer for the first one, uh, and uh, I would say that the media is uh, an important part of this process, uh, uh, social process. I mean but not the only one. And uh, people usually have uh, a habit of blaming the media for everything. And uh, also at the same time, they're expecting uh, uh, a change from them, from media, I mean. But uh, the media can do it alone uh, and uh, media outlets can only amplify new ideas and help those ideas grow and uh, show them uh, to a larger number of people but we also need uh, politicians, scientists, uh, public figures uh, to, to help. Uh, so it's not possible that the media uh, will do this change alone. And uh, also I can say for the second question that uh, of course we are doing uh, everything that we can to fight this propaganda and to make people believe uh, that uh, there are really those people, a lot of them dying in Ukraine. But um, uh, there's also a psychological reason of people not believing those uh, uh, victims, uh, I'd say, because uh, you just don't want to believe that uh, such uh, terrible things are happening right beside you. And um, it's not only... Uh, uh, thing to media for, for media to do, but uh, also for a large group of uh, uh, influencers and uh, scientists and politicians and all the people that want to change anything. So I think that uh, we will not win this uh, information war until we destroy the machine of propaganda. That's my personal opinion. And I think that it can be destroyed only by fighting it with uh, sanctions, not only like media fighting, but uh, also sanctions, economical sanctions, because a lot of people are getting richer because of uh, these propaganda machines that's working in Russia. It's not uh, only like uh, uh, propaganda, but it's also a, a source of wealth for many people, I'd say, uh, like Margarita Simanyan or others. And we need uh, to, uh, all people who want uh, to see some change uh, need to like push uh, them uh, with sanctions and uh, so on. 
interesting question out there in the q and I'll read it out for the audience. And am I muted? No. I'll read out that question for the audience, but do look at it, panelists. So any of you can jump in first. If we did not have a problem of resourcing, if we had, you know, several millions of dollars available, how do you reach all the Russians, especially those in the provinces, you know, outside Moscow, St. Petersburg, who are not computer savvy and do not know how to use VPNs to get around firewalls? Are there any other means like shortwave ratio, ratio hacking state TV, uh, push messages on mobile phones, et cetera, et cetera? Are there other technologies you're experimenting with to, to, to amplify your message spatially? Yeah, whoever would like to go. I can say that uh, we can use different platforms for that. Uh, of course, we are using, like I said, the mirror websites, but also uh, if you have more uh, resources uh, in your media outlet, uh, our outlet is not very rich, but uh, we are doing what we can. And if you have more resources, you can uh, widely use different platforms to get uh, to people in Russia. Uh, you can use YouTube, which is not blocked yet in Russia. You can uh, like uh, make uh, new campaigns uh, to... Uh, so people will uh, learn about it. Thank you for coming this. And uh, uh, for making your point. Yeah. Uh, I guess my internet is not uh, really good right now, so I'm just turning off it off. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question, but we should uh, first of all come uh, contemplate on uh, the human psychology. So we, it's very important to reach as many people as possible, but what is the chance that people uh, once upon a time decide to consume from another source? So currently they have lots of various information sources that they can use. They even have VPNs, right? But people do not install them. The question is why? Because they have a particular diet, they have a particular agenda and preferences. So one of the key things is certainly shutting off the propaganda, but also it is creating the uh, uh, sort of the, the parallel uh, news uh, source. So let's take the example, something that I'm familiar with fondly, uh, the example of Tomsk. I'm, I'm from there and they used to have like a very popular, really important uh, TV station, TV2, uh, and Viktor Mushnik left Tomsk after the war began, basically. So if you look at the media landscape of Tomsk today, you're going to see several state-funded uh, television networks. And also you'll see plenty of Instagram channels or Telegram channels. They all are very far from actually reporting what's going on in the, in the city and in the region, right? But nevertheless, people are interested and they're keen on knowing. So it doesn't matter how much money you have, but with the pressure of the state, and without people on the ground, 
it is very difficult to deliver quality news information to the people in the regions. So you can spend this on VPN, probably it's going to help, but also you need to change preferences of people. So that's a kind of, it's a complex effort. And uh, I can hardly imagine it's happening anytime soon. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I wanted to add something uh, about uh, how, to, how to reach people. Mm, I think this is uh, kind of obvious that uh, uh, Putin's uh, core uh, electorate, the people who usually are uh, voting for him, not often voluntarily, but still, uh, this is uh, Asian population, uh, people uh, who are either retired or uh, who ha have lived in Soviet Union. I'm not saying that uh, all of them support Putin, but it's it's average uh, assumption that uh, most of them, most of Putin's electorate are consist of them, and um, I think that uh, maybe uh, the main focus. Uh, uh, of independent journalists right now should be on the uh, on the younger generation uh, that is more willing to uh, more prepared for changes uh, and I think that uh, the key things here is the um, is that the international platforms like YouTube like Google like uh, Facebook and many, many social media, uh, they should support this effort of, of independent uh, journalists and all the independent sources of information to deliver their message to, to Russian public who can use it and who really use it uh, in, in their uh, general uh, lives. And um, because, you know, the it, I think that uh, this is another point that I heard from uh, Russian independent sociologists is that um, actually many people in Russia, even those who uh, respond to social question that they do support the war, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, uh, they in, in the bottom of their hearts, they actually realize what's going on, that this is a war, it's not a special operation and that people are dying there uh, and it's happening at the hands of Russian army. But uh, they cannot, again, they, they cannot uh, do anything with that. Uh, and I think uh, that that's the reason why I think that there, there, there must be a constant effort to reach these people too. So, and the more, um, uh, and, and the key is that, uh, the, the key uh, aim of, of independent journalists and even uh, and also I, I think oppositional politicians is to uh, try to teach people to act uh, because that's the thing that uh, pro propaganda taught them not to through, throughout all these years. Uh, 
What about, uh, I mean, for a minute to external uh, sources, what about, uh, you know, uh, media outlets like Al Jazeera, uh, who are operating in Russia last I heard. So how are they, how are they positioning themselves? Anyone? Sorry, could you, um, could, could you ex explain yeah, so exactly? Yeah, is not Western, like Al Jazeera, for example, not explicitly Western, or let's say uh, the Japanese. Uh, how are they positioning themselves in Russia? I mean, are they, are they being, uh, are they amplifying voices other than purely state propaganda? No, 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 they, they are, they're not uh, broadcasting in Russian, right? So it doesn't make any sense. Uh, people do not get the information in English or in any other languages, uh, because I mean, th this is something obvious and something natural that the the propaganda actually and information waves and sources they're working in they're working in in Russian language. Uh, most of the people in Russia speak Russian, <laughs> so um, you know the, the level of uh, yes, but, uh, if something comes out in English or in some other language, then independent media picks it up, translates it sources it, uh, gives it credit, and then puts it out. And that can be quite effective sometimes. I was wondering if any of that is happening. I'm not, if there is an echo, I'm not sure. But are you saying that they may be the sources of information, like the news? The... For example, Al Jazeera brought out a report about four days ago that uh, seven countries in the world are reevaluating their Russian equipment. Because the Russian equipment performed so badly in the war, they're wondering whether they should have bought it at all and they're canceling contracts. So, you know, in some circumstances, I've been in Brazil before when this happened, people would take these things, translate them, and they'd reach out to the public saying, there's a dimension here you've not seen. I'm just wondering if something like that is happening in Russia or uh, in the opposition or no? Yeah. Rida, you raised your hand. Yeah, I just, I, I uh, was, yeah. sorry. Please go on. No, I, I just could not hear the, the big part of the question. So I think Ilya understood. <laughs> so please, could you, uh, could you answer? Well, first of all, the, the biggest problem with the Russian audience, they don't speak foreign languages. The very few people in Russia who speak foreign languages, they consume foreign media. So they are not really the target group, the, the target audience. Al Jazeera or other alternative sources, they work for global audiences and these global audiences do not include the Russians. The very few foreign media that actually work for the Russian audiences in Russian Deutsche Welle, BBC Russian service, have I missed something? Um, mm -hmm. they, 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 they've been working and they kind of they deliver a, a high quality content that they've also been banned. So it's, again, it's not, it's about the willingness to look for alternative information. A lot of people in Russia, the majority, they they do not have this do not have this habit, and no matter how many TV stations or media you're going to have broadcasting to Russia, there are there is a number of factors that will actually define whether they the people would like to switch to these sources of information or not. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Can I, can I also add something, um, if you don't mind? Um, that there is a very important thing about the audience that we are reaching. You, you have asked Farida and, and 
others about how to reach these people and who are the targets of the international or independent or whoever whoever you name it, just you know, professional media outlets, I would tell you that it's not only the youth, which is obviously much more sophisticated and these are people who can use VPN and who can you know, go online and try, try to find different sources and try to criticize what they see on television. And maybe these are people who do not watch television at all. Uh, as I understand, uh, there are millions of young people in Russia who just don't watch television. They are, they are using internet and now they are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, in spite of the fact that they're banned in Russia as extremists. So uh, this is one thing. And another thing is, um, you know, I, I call it swing people, like swing states in America, people who do not exactly know what to believe in and what, what the source is to trust. And people who are who are doubting uh, who are doubting the statements of Vladimir Putin or Sergei Lavrov or other representatives of the uh, of the government of Russia, people who are not so sure that everything is going in the right direction. And I think I don't know how many people I'm talking about because there is no sociology. Again, I, I need to underline this: there's no sociology, real sociology in dictatorship. I think. This is very important. Uh, but I don't know how many people I'm talking about, but I, I think that there are a lot of citizens of Russian Federation who can just, you know, doubt what they're watching right now and who can doubt if, if the position of their state is, uh, is right. So we, we think that these guys, these people are very important to us. And these are people who we need to talk to. And YouTube, Telegram, VPNs, Facebook, I mean, th these are the tools that we, we need to use. Um, can, I, can, I, can I add something about the international media? Um, I, uh, I have a certain experience of, of working uh, in international media. I used to work at the BBC Russian service. And uh, well, I think the main thing uh, here to understand is that um, uh, foreign media in Russia are pictured as, a, uh, as the uh, enemy voices, like it was in Soviet Union. And uh, even uh, if somehow their information is squeezing from from some 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 sources, uh, they, these there's a there's a there was a huge smear campaign against uh, foreign journalists uh, together with with Russian journalists happening uh, at least uh, the last ten years and. Uh, uh, international and, and, and uh, the other thing to to realize is that uh, the vast majority of uh, Russian people have never been abroad. They don't speak foreign languages, uh, so they literally have uh, no no opportunity to to uh, reach uh, the information from international media. And uh, um, I think that. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and um, about uh, uh, the one important thing I, I, I wanted to tell you about working for, for BBC Russian service. Um, although some of international media have their uh, uh, segments uh, in uh, Russian language, uh, they are still um, not mainstream, like at all. And uh, we know that in pre previous years, Russian government, they even somehow used to bear with, with uh, for example, BBC Russian service. And uh, the reason why they did that, and that's the thing that I heard from my acquaintances uh, in uh, among, among Russian officials, is that, you know, guys, uh, nobody reads you, nobody watches your, your pieces, uh, and you just, you just, uh, you are no threat to us. And that's why you, you can do whatever, almost whatever you want, uh, because uh, you're not dangerous for us. Nobody, nobody can reach you. Nobody, nobody's reading you. And um, of course, it's it's not true entirely. Uh, and uh, me personally, I was, for example, uh, uh, banned from from the events with Vladimir Putin uh, after I posed my question about his family at his press conference while I was working on BBC. But still, yeah, uh, uh, the international media, uh, they uh, are both uh, have a, a kind of bad reputation in the eyes of many. And they are considered as enemies and the voices of enemies. Uh, and yeah, and, and the difficulty to, to reach them is also uh, a huge thing. And this is this is the reason why uh, it is so important to uh, uh, for uh, in, for Russian journalists to continue their work because there is no one else, literally no one else, who can reach Russian audience except them. Thank you. Well, I must say this will be one of the most well, one of the biggest, one of the most interesting uh, and multi-dimensional interactions that engaged with, I, I don't come, I'm Indian, I don't come from a great democracy. And I've worked in Brazil, which is not exactly a great democracy. But there are uh, taps open there, and spigots open there, which seem to be shut to you. All I can say is Godspeed, and uh, you know, uh, I hope that uh, you are able to overcome what you have said to overcome. Uh, I have to go for other events, so I'm going to hand over to my colleague Stephanie to uh, take you through a minute, minute and a half of perhaps each of you would like to see. And then we'd like to conclude by at least providing you with, providing our audience and others uh, through our channels with the platforms by which to be able to access you and read you. So thank you very much on my behalf and over to you, Stephanie. Thanks, Arvind. Um, yeah, so I think just to close, um, we wanted to sort of give maybe each of our panelists one minute or so to, um, I guess might reflect on either a key point of emphasis or um, my other question was, um, I'm not sure, from that sort of, I guess, bleak conjecture sort of um, summary of what's going on, your thoughts on what can be done either by non-Russians, um, governments, think tanks, journalists, or by Russians in Russia or in exile. So I guess to give each of you either one minute to just comment on what you'd like to emphasize or um, any last, thoughts on perhaps this question of, well, so what, what can we do? What could we do to support you? Um, and maybe I'll go in the reverse order. So Ilya, give you one minute and then um, 
pass through and end with Katya. Thank you. Um, okay, I think I started my introductory point was with what should be done. So I think uh, on that in that regard, I'm going to use this opportunity and say that uh, we are facing quite um, a, a difficult point right now in international crisis. It's called the fatigue from the crisis, from the war. Like people on all over the world are very. Uh, very tired at the moment and we can observe quite a, a lot of pressure from lobbyists in the European Union in the United States from just you know limiting the help to Ukraine uh, etc uh, uh, what I can say as a scholar and in many ways as a, as, as a person who who's been studying Russian media and disinformation for many years a very important thing now is for the global community for think tanks for governments to actually support Russian independent journalism. And I think I'm, I'm the best place person to say that because you know we have free, free journalists, free independent journalists say, sitting there. And you know I think I, I, I should be the one who should emphasize that because they are actually doing the, the best job so far. And this fatigue that might appear right now, the tiredness of the conflict, the hopefulness that, you know, if if, if Russia is going to take the Donbass and things will get as normal as possible, things will never get normal. And we have to face that. And, and one of the key elements, aside of anything else, is actually supporting the independent media. So I think that would be my message in, in addition to everything I've said so far. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tizia, Tizia, would you like to? Uh, yeah, uh, I can say that um, I would say that the Russian journalists like need a megaphone right now to make their voices louder and uh, any help that will uh, uh, make uh, the thing uh, work better is very important right now. And uh, I think that um, to fight Russian propaganda, uh, it's not only a task for Russian journalists right now, but also for a global community. And uh, as a Russian journalist, I would say that um, we all will be glad uh, to uh, work with uh, global community uh, and um, uh, international media organizations and uh, foreign journalists and so on, uh, just to fight this state propaganda more effectively and uh, be as as we can uh, against these catastrophes that is happening right now. Thank you. Yeah, um, and also just to say, we posted links up there to our speakers' sites to find more about their work. So please do follow. Farida, would you like to go next? Um, yeah, uh, I, I I would like to. In conclusion, uh, I would like to say that um, I think I think the important thing to understand is that. Uh, independent journalists right now uh, have not only a duty to fight with propaganda, I mean, directly, literally, but the other thing, the other important job right now is that is, is, is to tell people what is really going on inside the country. Uh, it is very challenging when almost, uh, when so many independent journalists left the country. But still, 
this is a this is a this is a huge uh, aim that I think is very very important, and uh, and there's a there's a lack of of the media uh, that uh, that are able uh, to to uh, describe what's what is really going on in different different fields in Russia, and uh, this is actually I see it as a as a personal challenge. I I would uh, I dream about. Um, developing my project to involve in, uh, I, I dream about involving uh, media professionals uh, from Russia, maybe to uh, even even if they decide to stay there and find it uh, safe to stay there, but to uh, treat uh, our uh, readers and listeners with respect, deliver them quality information. Uh, and uh, maintain uh, this uh, truthful uh, picture of, of the world and of, of Russia itself, uh, because uh, it, is, it's, it seems like that when you when you open I don't know social media or even even in Russian, uh, it it looks like there are so many things that are being told so many things that are being explained but this is literally nothing right now there is absolutely no independent media uh i mean uh in um th that has the opportunity to uh deliver its message message to the masses because of this blockade and, and everything uh and i think that we just we really uh, really need more more uh, independent outlets uh, to fight the ignorance uh, and uh, also misinformation. Thank you so much, and Katrina. Yeah, um, just a couple of things. So, as uh, Ilya has mentioned in the beginning, it's really important to figure out what would be the values that we will we will deliver to the people. Um, this is the first thing that, I mean, that comes to my mind when I think about the future, uh, future development of TV Rain and of uh, Russian, Russian language journalism. Um, it's important to know what we are offering people, not only criticizing propaganda, not only criticizing the criminal government that right now is sitting in Moscow, but also uh, showing alternatives, what exactly the democracy and human rights and, uh, you know, freedoms, what does it look like and why is it so important and what you guys need to fight for? Uh, it, it's, it's really, it really means a lot to me and to my colleagues at, um, at TV Rain. Uh, this is the first thing. Second is just to remember that um, Russia should not be blocked and banned and isolated. Russia is not uh, is not uh, 140 million Vladimir Putin's right. It's it's 140 million different people uh, who have their their own thoughts and their own principles and their own things that we need to we we, we need to respect and the whole world needs to respect just because the whole world I mean, I mean democratic world is different from from the Kremlin and because of democratic world has different values than the Kremlin has. Um, and, uh, you know, the support to, to people who fight for the freedom of Russia, for the best, you know, better future of Russia is really important. Not to, not to forget 
this is something that we are going to to push for as well not to forget about about russians russia and uh and not to forget that there are a lot of people who do not support this terrible catastrophic war that is going on right now in uh, in ukraine so just you know be with us let's stay in touch and um yeah thank you very much for this opportunity it's really important to be there with you and to and to talk about these things um thanks thank you so much i mean i think that's a really important and good point to end on um just remembering one that i think from what all of you at best have shared that censorship is incredibly depressing and putin's russia russian federation can also seem incredibly overwhelming but it is not russia and it's not the full story and i think your persistence um, as journalists to sort of to continue um, amidst these changing channels is, challenges is incredibly inspiring and gives, I think, a little bit of hope that we need to remember. Um, I just want to conclude by saying again, um, links to um, everyone's um, pages and ongoing work are in the channel. We'll also put it on ODI's website and sharing a recording of this as well. Um, and I guess with that, I'd just like to thank our panelists again and wish you um, yeah, all the best going forward and we are going to do what we can to support you and to work with you in this challenging environment. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you.